Okay. Well, you can go ahead and be finding in your Bibles uh, Exodus chapter number 14. Exodus chapter 14. I think we'll get to there here in a minute. You got a stop or two along the way before we get there, but we'll see. But uh, we've been looking at types and pictures of Christ in the Old Testament and what the Old Testament says about salvation and uh, being able to see Jesus throughout the Old Testament. Uh, I've said about every week, I think, that there's a common misconception that people were saved one way in the Old Testament, another way in the New Testament, or they'll try to they'll try to mesh together the Old Testament and the New Testament and put uh, law and grace together, works and grace together, and try to uh, try to synchronize the two of them. And they miss out on the fact that salvation has always been by grace through faith. And that's the way that it has always been. We've been seeing that repeatedly throughout Scripture. And a couple weeks ago, we looked at Moses, and we saw that he was saved by faith, that he believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. That's the, the phrase that we've been looking at over and over. And anyway, Moses... Uh, from a young age, God had God was steering his life and directing his life and bringing him through different circumstances to bring about his will in his life. But Moses responded in faith to the work that God was doing in him. Uh, Moses responded in faith whenever God was revealing himself to him. Uh, he tried of his own ability and his own will to work out the things that he thought God was trying to do and mess them up royally. Uh, but God allowed him to spend 40 years in the backside of the desert learning how to be a, uh, a godly leader rather than being a human leader. He learned how not to lead from, uh, from Pharaoh with being in the palace. And instead, he learned how to lead in a godly manner from being a shepherd in the backside of the wilderness. And so he learned a lot of things there. And God was in it all along, but he had a purpose for Moses. And Moses ended up becoming a picture or a type of Christ in the Old Testament as he became a means of deliverance for God's people. That God used Moses to bring his people out of Egypt. We know that Egypt is a type or a picture of sin and of the world. And so with that, Moses was a picture, a type of Christ. And I'm not saying that he was sinless like Christ by any means, because uh, if we were looking at him and saying that, trying to argue that he was saved by works. His works definitely don't add up. I mean, he was a murderer. He was a, uh, uh, what's the word I'm I'm looking for? Anyway, he was on the run from the government there. So, yeah, fugitive. There, that's where I was going. I started to say refugee. That's a different thing. He was a fugitive. And so he was a fugitive. He was a murderer. He was uh, apparently quick to anger and different things like that until God got a hold of him and started shaping him. And so anyway, it wasn't anything that he had done. It was a work of God that God did within him. And that's the case with salvation. It's not by our works, but it is by his grace. And we receive his grace through faith, not through our works. And so anyway, as we're looking at this here, we saw last week uh, the Passover and how it paralleled um, uh, Jesus' final week. We find that uh, God was working in the, the nation of Egypt. It tells us specifically that he was working to show the people himself. He wanted to be known not just amongst the Jews, but amongst the Gentiles. And the way that he did that is he released plagues upon the, the uh, Egyptians in order to prove to them that he was the real God, that he was the true and living God. Just the fact that God was willing to... Uh, to do that, to humble himself to that place, that he was willing to demonstrate to them that he was the, the real one, yeah. okay? Think about this, how demeaning it would be, how humbling it would be if you had to try to prove your identity between you and a lookalike. Mm. Now, we see that on, um, uh, on movies, on television and stuff, yeah. imposters, and they come and they say, but I'm the real one. No, I ain't. We've seen that kind of thing, right? Right. And in a way, God engaged in almost that sort of a contest where he took on all of the gods of Egypt and shown himself to be the real God. 
that they were fakes, that they were imposters. But the reason he was willing to do that was because of his love for mankind, is that he wanted to demonstrate even to the Egyptians, even to those who rejected him and followed after false gods, that they were on the wrong track, and he wanted to turn them to himself. And so for people who look at the plagues that were released upon Egypt and would accuse God of being unfair or being mean or being cruel, God was actually doing that in mercy, demonstrating to them that their gods were powerless and that he was the one who was real, that he was the one that they should be following after and serving. And so the reason why all those things happened was to turn them to himself, to turn them from darkness into light. And we're going to see that continuing today as well. But going back to what I was saying with the Passover, it paralleled Jesus' final week. It pictured the sacrifice that uh, Jesus would one day make. Because in the final plague there in Egypt, the firstborn was condemned to die. Uh, God said that throughout all the land of Egypt, the firstborn from the palace all the way down to the prison, uh, even the firstborn of all the animals was going to die. Mm -hmm. But he said, in addition to that, I'm going to provide a means of escape. I'm going to provide a way that they don't have to die, but it must be received, it must be accepted by faith. And so with that, he said, you are to take and kill a lamb, and that lamb is going to be a substitute for the one who is supposed to die. And that was a picture of Jesus. Jesus was our substitute. He was our Passover. We were condemned to die because of our sins, and Jesus took upon himself the punishment that we deserved. He shed his blood that we could live. And so we see all that played out in the Old Testament, all that played out amongst the Jews, amongst Israel. And so he's our perfect Passover. He is our substitute that died in our place. The Passover for the Jews wasn't just a a memorial looking back to that first time in Egypt. It was also looking forward to Jesus. It was also looking forward to the cross. And so it pictured that perfectly. And so anyway, uh, as of the night of the Passover, the Jews became freed from Egypt. They were thrust out. Uh, Pharaoh sent his messenger and told them, get out. They went and borrowed things from all of the people around them. And uh, they basically looted the, the country of Egypt as they were leaving it. And so as they did that, they were out of Egypt, they were out of the world, they were freed from sin, they were freed from bondage, they were freed from slavery. And we could look at that with the Israelites as being the point of salvation, right? And so continuing from their point of salvation, uh, most of what we're going to look over the coming weeks is going to apply more to the Christian life and to Christian living, but it's also going to have constant reminders of the gospel. It's going to have Uh, pictures or examples reminding us that God doesn't change, nor does he change how he deals with mankind. And so I just want to, before we get into Exodus chapter 14, I want to step back and I want to uh, show us just a brief lesson from Pharaoh's dealings with Israel, okay, as as it relates to uh, the Christian's walk with God. And I know I've already got us in, in Exodus 14. We'll get there in just a minute. But I will point out just a few verses here. We won't necessarily read them for, for time's sake. Uh, actually, maybe we will. Just flip back a couple of pages to Exodus chapter number 8. At least I didn't send you too far. As Moses continued coming to Pharaoh, saying, Let my people go as the Savior was going to uh, the one that had them bound, trying to loose them, trying to free them, uh, there are different times that compromises are extended. Okay? And so as Moses is coming to Pharaoh and saying, let God's people go, that they may serve him, we've got to leave Egypt completely, We're going to go out in the wilderness. We're going to serve God, do sacrifices, all these different things. Pharaoh finally gets to the place in Exodus chapter number 8, verse number 25. And it says, And Pharaoh called for Moses and for Aaron and said, Go ye, sacrifice to your God in the land. 
This is the first compromise that is extended. And our lesson that we're bringing from this at the moment is this is the way that Satan would work in the lives of the believer. This is the way that we are tempted in this world whenever it comes to the things of God. And so what Pharaoh says to Moses is, I will let the people go, but not from the land. I want them to stay in Egypt to serve their God. I want them to continue to keep one foot in the world, the other foot in the church. I want them to to kind of straddle the fence. I want them to try to uh, have it both ways. And this is one of the first uh, compromises that is offered to someone whenever God is dealing with them, whenever he's drawing them, whenever they are considering the things of God, that they don't want to completely unhitch from the world. They don't want to completely loose from the world, but they try to uh, try to have it both ways here and straddle the fence. So they try to serve God in Egypt, and that's the first compromise. So for someone who is considering God, someone who is uh, hearing about his deliverance and considering uh, leaving Egypt, so to speak, say, well, I don't really have to leave Egypt. I don't really have to uh, turn away from the world. I don't really have to separate from the world. I can serve God and serve the world at the same time. And the Bible says you can't have it both ways, that you can't serve God and mammon. That friendship with the world is enmity with God. And so that was the first compromise that he offered. The second one is in verse number 28 of chapter 8. Since they refused that one, it says, Pharaoh said, I will let you go that you may sacrifice to the Lord, uh, to the Lord your God in the wilderness, only ye shall not go very far and treat for me. So this time he says, okay, I'll go ahead and I'll let you out of Egypt, which is a picture of the world, picture of sin. I'll let you go, but don't go very far. Don't get too serious about it, right? And so this would be a picture of someone who gets saved, but they continue to be lukewarm or Laodicean. They continue to just kind of uh, be barely in the church. They've gotten saved, but they're not going to uh, to be a, a fanatic about it. They're not going to go too far in it. Just drifting. Yeah, just barely in, just dipping their toes in, so to speak. So yeah, I've, I've gotten saved. I've went ahead and I've rejected Satan. I've went ahead and I've I've done that, but I've left Egypt, but I haven't gotten too far from it. So this would be carnal Christianity. The third compromise that we see here is in chapter 10, if you'll skip forward just a page or so. Exodus chapter 10, verse number 11. I'll go ahead back to verse number 9. It says, And Moses said, We will go with our young and with our old, with our sons and with our daughters, with our flocks and with our herds. We will go, for we must hold a feast unto the Lord. And he said unto them, let the Lord be so with you, as I will let you go, and your little ones look to it, for evil is before you. Not so. Go now, ye that are men, and serve the Lord, for that ye did, ye did desire. And they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. So this third compromise is found in verse number 11. Ye that are men shall go, but don't bring your children with you. So it's okay. You can get saved. You can serve God. But keep it to yourself. Don't be uh, sharing it with your family. Don't be uh, spreading it around at work. Don't be taking anyone else with you. Just keep it to yourself. And so this is compromises whenever it comes to Christianity. Uh, try to keep one foot in the world, one foot in the church. No, that doesn't work. Uh, go ahead and be saved, but don't get serious about it. Okay, well, if you're going to get serious about it, let it just be you, but don't share it with anybody else. Don't be bringing your family along. Don't be bringing your friends along. Don't be uh, affecting other people with what you're doing. So that's the third compromise. And then the fourth one, we find down in verse number 24 of chapter 10. It says, And Pharaoh called unto Moses and said, Go ye, serve the Lord, only let your flocks and your herds be stayed. Let your little ones also go with you. And Moses said, Thou must give us also sacrifices and burnt offerings, that we may sacrifice unto the Lord our God. 
And so the fourth compromise, the last compromise that Pharaoh extends, that the devil extends to us, is okay. First, I didn't want you to get saved. I just wanted you to dabble in both worlds, try to straddle the fence. And well, if you're going to get saved, don't get too serious about it. Well, if you're going to get serious about it, just don't spread it to anyone around you. And then this fourth one is don't let it affect your livelihood. Don't let it affect your possessions. It's okay if God has you, but don't let him have any of your stuff. Okay? And why would that be important? Why would the devil try to keep that back? What is it? Okay. Mm -hmm. But here's the thing. If God doesn't have your stuff, if God doesn't have your possessions and your profession, if he doesn't have all of you, he doesn't have any of you, right? And so there's areas that we hold out on, and you say, okay, God, I'll serve you. I'll go to church. I'll be a good person. I'll live morally, but I'm going to withhold these things from you. The Bible says that where your treasure is, there your heart is also, right? And so if we hold back areas from God, we are holding back ourselves. And so essentially what we're seeing here is God doesn't just want to partially free us. He doesn't just want pieces of us. He wants all of us. And he doesn't want these little anchor points, these little things holding us back. Because isn't that what Pharaoh wanted them to leave their animals behind for? He said, if they leave out of the land, I'll have trouble getting them to come back to the land. So I'm going to just keep them in the land. Well, they're not going to be satisfied with that. I'll let them go out of the land, but I won't let them go too far. I want to keep them under my thumb to where I still have control over them. Okay, well, I'll go ahead and let you go further, but I want your children left behind as a security. I'm going to keep them here because you're not going to go away and leave your children behind. And then, well, I'm going to let your children go too, but you're going to have to leave all your flocks and your herds behind so that you have something holding you here, right? And so whenever we look at this in the, the lens of salvation, because this is what this is an example is, this is uh, what we can uh, glean from this, is Satan does try to keep us as close to him as possible. He doesn't want us to serve God wholly. He doesn't want us to serve God completely. And so he offers up sacrifice, or not sacrifices, compromises to keep us from getting too close to God. And we'll give him a little bit, but we still are keeping our claws dug into the world a little bit. Whether it's that we're not fully leaving it, we're not going too far from it, we're keeping some things still there that's holding us fast to it, but God is wanting to deliver us from it completely without any reservations, with nothing holding us back. And so when we finally come up to chapter number 14, where we started out at, that I haven't read yet, God has delivered them out of Egypt completely. They have left the land. At the end of chapter number 13, God is leading them by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. He's taking them and not on the most direct route. Okay, He's got a specific route in mind, but God is leading them. But whenever they have gotten out of sight of Pharaoh, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. We'll read here in just a minute. His heart is hardened, and he says, I have just fully let it, foolishly let, it go, let go all of my free workforce. I've let go all of my slaves. And so he decides, I'm not happy that they have been delivered out of my grips. Now, keep in mind, Pharaoh is a picture of Satan. Okay, they've gotten out of my grips and I'm not happy about it. So now I'm going to trail them. Now I'm going to dog them. Now I'm going to go after them and try to reclaim them, try to halt their process, try to discourage them, try to keep them back whatever way that I can. So Pharaoh begins to chase the children of Israel. Now, pause just a second and think about this. Egypt lie in ruins, Right. You remember all the plagues? Water that turned to blood, frogs and flies and lice and boils and disease amongst the cattle. And then the death of the firstborn, in addition to all the ones that I didn't mention. 
I mean, that's pretty severe. The hailstones that fell from the sky, their crops were eaten of locusts, their uh, trees were broken down, their houses were, the, the roofs were broken in from the hail, all those different things happening. And then all the death that took place, all of the bodies that were being piled up, I don't know if they were burning them, if they were uh, burying them, what they were doing with them, I'm assuming probably mass graves, right? And before the bodies are even buried, Pharaoh says, wait a minute, I need to go and get a hold of them. I need to bring them back. I said Pharaoh is a picture of Satan, right? I said on Sunday that Satan is a loser. And it was very clear that Satan, or excuse me, that Pharaoh was a loser. He had already failed miserably. He had already been beaten multiple times. He didn't know when to quit. And so even from basically the belly of hell there in Egypt at that time, he is still pursuing after God and God's people. He's relentless, isn't he? And so anyway, we come to chapter 14. Let's go ahead and read just a little bit in chapter 14. I won't read the whole chapter uh, because I'll put you to sleep. But anyway, verse number one, it says, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, that they turn and encamp before Piharoth, before Migdal, and the sea over against Baal Zephon. Before it before shall ye camp by the sea, for Pharaoh will say of the children of Israel, They are entangled in the land, the wilderness has shut them in, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart, that he shall follow after them. And I will be honored upon Pharaoh and upon all his host, that the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord. Now I've got that, that part underlined in my Bible. That's something important. That the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord. So what was all of these things that God was putting them through? What was it about? That they would know that he's the Lord. They've been following false gods. They've been following idols. They didn't know God. God was introducing himself to them. And you say, well, it's cruel the way he's doing it. That's what it took, right? And it says, and, so, or, and they did so, verse 5, And it was told the king of Egypt that the people fled, and the heart of Pharaoh and of his servants was turned against the people. And they said, Why have we done this, that we have let Israel go from serving us? And he made ready his chariot and took his people with him. Now notice, Pharaoh is with this group. He is with these chariots. And he took 600 chosen chariots and all the chariots of uh, Egypt and captains over every one of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued after the children of Israel. And the children of Israel went out with an high hand, but the Egyptians pursued after them all the horses and chariots of Pharaoh and his horsemen and his army and overtook them encamping by the sea beside Pi-Haharoth before Belzephon. And when Pharaoh drew nigh, the children of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians marched after them. So apparently it wasn't just chariots. There's people marching as well, right? And they were sore afraid, and the children of Israel cried out unto the Lord. And they said unto Moses, Because there was no graves in Egypt, thou hast taken us away to die in the wilderness. Wherefore hast thou dealt thus with us to carry us forth out of Egypt? Is not this the word that we did tell thee in Egypt, saying, Let us alone, that we may serve the Egyptians? For it had been better for us to serve the Egyptians than that we should die in the wilderness. And Moses said unto the people, Fear not, stand still, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will show you today. For the Egyptians whom ye have seen today, ye shall see them again no more forever. The Lord shall fight for you, and ye shall hold your peace. And the Lord said unto Moses, Wherefore criest thou unto me? Speak unto the children of Israel that they go forward, but lift up thy rod, and stretch out thine hand over the sea, and divide it, and the children of Israel shall go on dry ground through the midst of it. And I, behold, I will harden the heart of the Egyptians, and they shall follow them, and I will get honor upon Pharaoh, and upon his host, upon his chariots, and upon his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten me honor upon Pharaoh, upon his chariots, and upon his horsemen. So we'll stop there for, for the sake of time here. But what we're seeing is the children of Israel have been released from Egypt. They have been saved from their bondage, but the enemy is still 
pursuing after them. God is leading them. God has directed them to this place, and the place that he's directed them to is trapped immediately between the Egyptian army and the Red Sea. And so we get down to this one place where the children of Israel then start to uh, murmur and complain against Moses. They said, we told you leave us alone. It would have been better for us to continue being slaves in Egypt than for us to die in the wilderness. He said, ever since we have gotten safe, things have gotten worse. That's what they're telling him. It'd been better off for us to stay in the state that we were in. And so they come to this place where there is a difficulty. They're between a rock and a hard place, as the saying goes. And this causes them to cry out unto God. It causes them to get to the end of their abilities. It causes them to come to the end of self. And they are forced to turn to God and to rely on Him. We find that the Christian life isn't just salvation by faith, but it is walking by faith after salvation. And God isn't just bringing them to the place where they can ride through smoothly. There's the false idea that Christianity is about it all being a smooth road, that if you are following God and if you're living right, that God's going to make the path smooth before you, that he is going to pave the way, that it's going to be peace and prosperity, no difficulties, no trials. And that has been a stumbling block to many people. If you get amongst uh, uh, the places that preach the the peace and prosperity gospel, the more charismatic teachings and whatnot, they make it sound like if you will just pray a prayer, if you'll just follow God, just go to church, if you just have faith, then everything is going to turn out well. You're going to have uh, a good job. You're going to have a beautiful wife. You're going to have a full bank account. You're going to have a new car. And everything is going to turn up sunshine and roses. But that is not the experience of reality. That is not what we find throughout the Bible with God's, uh, God's servants in Scripture. It's not what we find uh, in our day-to-day life. And what happens if you uh, listen to this kind of teaching and this kind of preaching that you think that if you are doing good, if you are serving God, that everything is going to be easy, then the difficulties come and you start questioning yourself or you start questioning God. You say, why is it difficult? Why is it hard? Why is there bad times coming up in my life if I'm trying to do right? And this is kind of the same idea that has often been uh, taught or perceived within religion because all the way back at Job's time, right? Remember Job? What was it that his friend said? You must have sinned. There is something wrong with you is why you're going through difficulty. That was their perspective, right? We come forward to Jesus' time. Whenever they brought the the man that was born, I can't remember if he was born lame or born blind. I think he was born blind. And they said, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Their expectation was they did something bad or someone did something bad to cause this hardship to come upon them. Whenever they asked that to Jesus, what was Jesus' response? Anyone remember? Hmm? Okay, neither of them. It wasn't he or his family. But why was it the man was born blind? Okay, pretty much. It says that he wasn't born blind because of anything that anyone had sinned but that the power of God could be manifest in him. In other words, God was doing a greater work through his blindness than if he would have been healed or if he would have been born whole. That God can do miraculous and can do great things even through difficult circumstances. I I heard a quote from a preacher today that he said, sometimes God allows that which he hates to bring forth that which he loves. That's, that's pretty incredible, isn't it? He allows it. It's not that he causes it. It's not that he makes it happen. But sometimes he allows that which he hates to bring about that which he loves. That's the case with Christ on the cross. Do you think that he desired, that he wanted to be beat and spit upon and mocked and ridiculed and all those things and die and be buried? 
No. He said, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. But nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. So he allowed what he hated to bring forth that which he loved. He brought salvation to whosoever will through something so gruesome and as horrible as that. So we find that God is often doing that throughout all of Scripture. And if we miss, miss, or misinterpret, misrepresent God and think that the Christian life is supposed to be smooth sailing as long as you are doing right, whenever it's not smooth sailing, you say, well, I must be sinning. I must be wrong somewhere. Or you'll say, I know I'm doing everything right, so God must have something wrong with him. Or maybe he doesn't even exist. And there's been plenty of people because of bad situations, because there is suffering, pain, wickedness in this world. They say, God must not be good, or he may not even exist at all. And bring into question if God is even there whatsoever because of the injustices and the difficulties that come in life. But what we see if we study the scripture, if we'll be honest with ourselves, we find that God is so much bigger and so much more competent than we ever give him credit for. And so what we're finding in this passage, what it's teaching us about life in general, about God and his relationship with man, about Christianity, is that God is dealing with all of these people in this circumstance with a purpose in mind. With the Egyptians, he says, I want to show them who I am. I want to, they're going to understand power and demonstrations of my power, right? They need to see me at work. They need to see me acting. And that's what they're going to understand because they're looking to their gods to do all these things. I'm going to prove to it that their gods have no power over me, but that I am in control over all things. I want to demonstrate myself. I want them to know me. Okay. And so that's what he's doing with the Egyptians. But for the people who know him, he says, I want them to trust me. Right? And so they were brought out of it by faith. They were delivered by the Passover. They slew the Passover lamb. They were trusting. They were believing God. They were delivered out of Israel, or not out of Israel, out of Egypt. And now as they stood entangled, stuck between the Egyptians and the Red Sea, once again, they are forced to call out to God and to look for him to do what they are unable to do themselves. And that in and of itself is another picture of salvation. Uh, Moses says in verse number 13, Fear ye not, stand still, and see the salvation of the Lord. Right? And so what they have to do is they come to the end of themselves. They are stuck. They look around. They say, there is no way for us to save ourselves. Right? And so they are forced to look to God. They cry out to God. God speaks through Moses and he says, I've led you here for a reason. I'm going to part the waters. You're going to walk across on dry ground and you are no longer going to see the Egyptians anymore. I'm going to demonstrate to all of the land of Egypt that I am in control because the last God that God wipes out within Egypt is Pharaoh. You go back and look through Egyptian history. They worshiped their Pharaoh. They worshiped him as a god. And now this half-crazed, bloodthirsty ruler is chasing after them. And it says that there is a wall of water to their left hand and to their right. And he is foolish enough to lead his entire army in between two walls of water, thinking that they can continue going across. He's blind to the miracle that's going on. He's blind to the power of God that's happening. That's a picture of the world, right? They can see everything that God's doing around them, that he's keeping things going, that he's keeping the earth rotating and the, the stars in the sky where they belong. He's keeping uh, our lungs going and all of the days coming and the nights. He's keeping everything in existence. We can look back over all the things that testify of him from the past. And the world ignores it, just like Pharaoh ignored that there was a wall of water to either side of him. Right? That comes back to what we were talking about on Sunday, that uh, people uh, refuse to believe because of their will, not because of evidence, right? 
and they will march blindly into oblivion because they refuse to see the hand of God around them. And so the only way that Pharaoh could go into that situation is if he was either nuts or blind by his own hatred and his own desires, right? Which I guess in a way would still be nuts, wouldn't it? I'm just still trying to picture this in my mind, okay? A wall of water to either side of them, and he turns to the men and says, let's go after them. What would persuade them to go as well? I think, I would like to think, okay, if I was an Egyptian and I saw a wall of water on either side of me and the Israelites going across on dry ground after God has just decimated my land, I, I would like to think I'd draw the line here and say, there's no way I'm going into that. Right? But they did. They marched into it. They went along with it. And as they were going, they were catching up on the Israelites. It was taking them a while because there was over a million people, probably two million people, who was crossing the Red Sea at this time. And it was taking a while to get across. And it says that uh, in verse number 24, that he troubled the host of the Egyptians. 25, took off their chariot wheels. They're just going along. These are their war chariots. They're well-tuned. They're fighting machines. And all of a sudden, they just start losing all their wheels in the middle of this. And they're stuck. This is funny to me. I mean, God has a sense of humor. They're just going along. They're gaining. And God says, okay, I'm going to give you some extra time. You read the part in between this. We find that the pillar of cloud and fire removed from being in front of the Israelites and leading them, going behind them, being a, a barrier between them and their enemies. And so the Egyptians are coming through, wall of water on either side, and then in front of them, this pillar of cloud or fire so that they can't see their enemies ahead of them, the Israelites ahead of them. And then their wheels start falling off. I wonder at what point did they just finally realize, man, we, we goofed up. We're in too deep, literally. And so anyway, all this happens and the Israelites go on across. They get out the other side. Uh, the waters come back in on top of the Egyptians and drown Pharaoh's entire army. And I've got to assume Pharaoh, too. He was leading them. He was with them. And so drowns them all. And the children of Israel see this happen. They saw the waters part. Just open up like a pair of curtains. Okay? They saw that happen. Right whenever they were complaining and saying, Moses, you let us out here to die. Moses says, hold on. Watch what God's going to do. Dry land, they walk across. They're waving at the fish as they go through. I'm assuming. Wouldn't you? Get a couple, put them in your pocket, save them for lunch at night. But anyway, they got across the other side. They saw God's pillar of cloud in between them, blocking them, shielding them from their enemies. They get out on the other, uh, on the other side, and the waters close in. They saw the bodies of the Egyptians, the bodies of their horses, washed up on the shore. Okay? They wrote a song, or Moses wrote a song, and sang a song, and Miriam sang and danced and all those things, talking about the victory that God had wrought that day. Okay, so why am I going through all of this? The children of Israel began following God. They were saved. They were delivered from Egypt. They began following God. They came up on a hardship. They didn't know where to turn, and then God brought deliverance to them. They recognized the deliverance at that time. They celebrated the deliverance. They gave God the glory. And then what happened? They complained again. They had a short memory, didn't they? See, what God does in our lives is he wants us to learn to trust him, to follow him, to allow him to be in charge. But we continue to doubt him. We continue to try to take the reins and for us to try to be in charge. We continue going on in fear and in dismay and in distraction, all these other things, doubting him, feeling helpless, and not realizing that he's been there all along. And so if you look back at this situation with them at the Red Sea, why were they standing on the edge of the Red Sea? Why were they in that situation? Okay, because they trusted God and he led them there. Now, if you're not following God and you end up in a mess, sorry about your luck, there's no promises there, right? 
it does say in the Bible, all things work together for good for them who love God, for them who are called according to his. Right? According to his purpose. Yeah, there you go. And so whenever we're following him, whenever we are going the direction that he has led us, and we get to the Red Sea, rather than questioning God, rather than questioning the direction, say, okay, God, I'm doing my best to follow you. This seems impossible. I don't know what you're going to do, but God, I am leaving this in your hands. I am following you. I am trusting you to bring me through this, right? Because he brought them there. He brought them there so they were going to have to depend on him. Because our first instinct, our first desire is trust ourselves, to do it our way. We are lifted up with pride. We are lifted up with our own ego, and we try to take charge. And even a lot of uh, a lot of uh, groups within Christianity have this idea: okay, I trust in God for salvation, and I trust in me to live out the Christian life. It's as if God saves them, and then His hands are off and says, "Okay, let's see what you can do." And that's not what we find in Scripture. It's not, okay, God saved me, now how can I perform? What can I do? How can I pay him back and show him that he made a good choice in saving me? It's, no, God still wants you to follow him and to trust him and allow him to lead and to obey him. And with that, there are many blessings and benefits to letting him be the one in charge and him be the one that's in control. And so he led them there so that they would have to depend on him so that he could prove himself. And that, that's, once again, that's a little bit crazy to me that God is willing to let me put him to the test. Right? I mean, if I was God, if I was as powerful as he was, I'd be like, hello, I'm God, just trust me. But God says, no, I'll prove myself to you. And he says, okay, I'm going to bring you here. And you're obviously, you're looking around and there is no way that anything good could come out of this. There's no way that you could save yourself. There's no way that you could deliver yourself. You can't fight off the Egyptians. You can't escape. You're a huge crowd. There's no way you could run from him. There's a river, or a, not a river. There's a sea in front of you. You can't swim it. You don't have time to build boats. And if you did, that'd be a bunch of boats, right? And so he says, okay, you are now at my mercy. You have to trust me and watch what I'm going to do. And I pointed out as I was going through and recounting the story, all of the ways that God was working on behalf of his people, right? Because he brought them there. He gave them assurance through Moses and says, God's going to save you. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. He's going to deliver you from your enemies. And so not only does he give them the, the kind of the little sneak peek into what he's getting ready to do, he does something miraculous. He parts the Red Sea. He doesn't just make it shallow. He doesn't just let a wind blow into where the water's not very deep, like some of these guys try to excuse it as being. But instead, he makes a wall of water. on. He, he suspends the laws of nature, basically. Right? For their sake. They cross through on dry ground. But as he's doing that, he's even taking this pillar of cloud that he has led them with, a supernatural appearance of God, and he is shielding them from their enemies. He is holding back the enemy from them. So the times whenever it feels like the enemy is just bearing down on us, God is still able to keep him at bay, still able to keep him back from us. He's still keeping him contained. And then as they are still going along and they are struggling along, even with all of the things that God is doing for them, they're still struggling. That's how weak we are, right? Got God on our side doing all these things. And we like to think, uh, with God, nothing shall be impossible, right? I can do all things through Christ, which strengthens me. And we want to think that we're powerful. No, we're actually really weak. He's very strong. And so while we're just hobbling along, getting across the, the Red Sea bed, he's back there blocking the enemy from us, taking their chariot wheels off, slowing them down, gets us all across to safety, and then drowns them. Right? And so he's proving himself time and time again, and the Israelites are like, did you see that? They knew this wasn't normal things that just happened. Do you see how God was working on our behalf? 
but he also did this, as I've said already, to show the Egyptians that he was God. He wasn't just wanting to beat up on the Egyptians. He wasn't doing this to punish them. He was doing this so they as a people would see that their gods were no gods at all and so that they would serve the God of Israel. I wonder how many of the Egyptians actually converted. I wonder how many of them actually believed and said, forget Ra and Horus and all these different ones. I'm going to follow that God. And he also used it as a testimony to other nations. And this is one that's often overlooked, but whenever you get up to Joshua chapter number two, you have the story of the Israelites coming in and scoping out Jericho. And they come, the spies come in to a harlot's house by the name of Rahab. And Rahab tells them in chapter two and verse number 10, we know what your God did to the Egyptians at the Red Sea. 40 years ago, Right? 40 years earlier, we heard about what your God has done, and we realized that he is God, and we believe in him. And so Rahab the harlot harbored the spies, brought them safely out of there, showed them how to uh, get out of Jericho alive, basically. They went back and told Joshua and the people, these people have heard about God's exploits years ago. They are already very afraid of us because of our God. And Rahab became a Christian, basically, became an Israelite because of the testimony of what had happened at the Red Sea. Okay? And so we find that God didn't bring Israel out to a smooth, well-marked highway. He didn't give them a carnival cruise ship where they could eat on the buffet and swim in the pool to get to the promised land. Instead, he was leading them a route to where they were going to learn who he was and learn that they could trust him to learn his nature, his character, how he loved them and how he cared for them. Now, as we're looking at this also with salvation, did they deserve any of what God was doing for them? They didn't deserve the deliverance. If we continue to follow Israel through the wilderness... It's already been pointed out that they continue to doubt him over and over and over again, right? But God, whenever he saves us, he does it by faith in his finished work. He doesn't just, as I said earlier, say, good luck, do your best from here on out. Instead, he still says, trust me, follow me. And he leads us through sometimes difficult journeys for our good, for his glory, and as a testimony to others. And so think for just a minute, what if the Red Sea crossing had never happened? What if God had chose just to cut them a straight line, smooth all the way, no problems along the way, plenty of food, plenty of water, no enemies to stop them, all the way to the promised land? How would that have worked? They would have been ungrateful. They, exactly. They would have thought they did it all themselves, right? And then they would have got up to Kadesh Barnea. They would have uh, jumped right into the promised land and they would have got defeated trying to do it themselves. Right? And they never would have learned who God was. They never would have depended upon him. They wouldn't have saw all the miracles that he brought for them. They wouldn't have... Uh, they probably wouldn't have survived. They wouldn't have been the lineage of the Messiah. They wouldn't have saw salvation come through them. They would have just been maybe a footnote in history. Right? But God says, I have a better plan. I have something else that I'm wanting to do. I want them to know me. That's more important than them getting to the promised land. They need to know me. They need to know they can trust me and depend upon me. So that whenever they get to the promised land, they'll continue to trust me and depend upon me. And so he led them. He made a way, protected them. He provided for them. He fought for them. And he doesn't just do it for them. He does it for us. Because for us, it's easy for us to look back at the Israelites and to criticize them, right? If we were to continue through Exodus, I want to just bring out a few different uh, illustrations here, a few different points 
so that I don't hit on them one at a time. But just a day or two after they're brought through the Red Sea, they get out in the wilderness and they find that the waters that they have to drink are bitter waters. Basically, it's salt water. Can you live off of drinking salt water? No, it'll actually kill you quicker than having no water at all, right? And so anyway, they find bitter waters. They find salt water to drink, and they begin to cry and to criticize and to murmur against Moses and against God once again. And God shows shows Moses a tree that he can cast into the bitter waters and makes the bitter waters sweet, okay? So, so soon after God's deliverance of the Red Sea, they're murmuring and complaining again. Rather than going to God and saying, okay, God, we've got another problem. What do we do about this? We're trusting you to work this out. They murmur and complain and say, we should have stayed in Egypt, right? And God makes a way to turn the things that are bitter into sweetness. That's interesting, isn't it? We go through a lot of circumstances that at the time are bitter, but God has a way of turning them sweet. He has a way of taking the things that are difficult and making those some of the best things. And only God can do that. And so that's what he does at that time. We find in chapter 16, in the first few verses there, that now they are hungry. And they are saying, we remember all the things that we had to eat in Egypt. All of a sudden, they have memory problems. They remember the good, but they forget the bad. And sometimes we we look back at the good old days and reminisce about different things. But they're saying we had food whenever we were there. Yes, we were beaten mercilessly. We were enslaved, all these different things. But we had food. And God provides manna from heaven. We'll find later on that they even complain about the manna. They said, well, what God's providing is not good enough. I want something else. God provides quail, right? In chapter 17, once again, they don't have water. They forget how God is part of the waters how he sweetened the waters, and can he not also produce the waters? And so anyway, he tells Moses, what you're to do, you're go to the rock, and you're to smite it, and waters will come out. I don't know about you, but rocks don't tend to contain much water, right? The New Testament gives us a little bit more light on it and tells us that Jesus was the rock that followed them in the wilderness. And as that shines light on it, the first time that he came, he was struck, he was smitten, and he produced living waters from his death on the cross. Another type of Christ in the Old Testament, right? And that is why that whenever Moses the second time, up in Numbers chapter number 20, God says, speak to the rock. And Moses gets angry, stands before them all and says, oh, you bunch of rebels, shall I uh, fetch water out of this rock? And he strikes the rock, which was a picture of Jesus, and strikes him the second time. Whenever God says, speak to him. The water still issues forth, but Moses is judged at that time and doesn't get to enter the promised land. Because here's the thing, Jesus was to be struck down once, but that opened up our avenue to be able to come in and speak to him. He became our advocate. And that's why Moses was to speak to the rock. He said, well, this is stupid, speaking to the rock. You're speaking to Christ. Okay, So we see that in the, the Old Testament. We see that through the Israelites how God was using these different things as pictures, as educational tools for them and for us. But over and over again, there was difficulties that arose. They murmured, they complained, they tried to go back, but yet God was patient with them and he worked with them and he educated them, if you will, about himself so that they would follow him, so that they would trust him. And so that's consistently through their journeys. They're confronted with these needs, with these difficulties. They have no ability to overcome them on their own. And God ends up delivering them in spite of them, right? In spite of all their failures and their lack of faith, God takes care of them. Sometimes judgment falls. Sometimes they forfeit blessings that they would have received if they would have just trusted God But God was working to bring them to himself, to trust in him. 
None of it was based upon their goodness. None of it was based upon their abilities. He's saying, if you trust me and follow me, you're going to have all you need. You're going to be taken care of. You're going to receive blessings and benefits. If you, as being my children, if you refuse to trust me, if you continue to lean in on yourself, you're going to have greater difficulties. You'll have greater problems. You're going to have to learn some lessons the hard way, but you're still going to be my children, right? As I already said, we can be spectators as we look at the children of Israel and become critical of them because we can look at this, we can see God all over the story, right? See all the things that God is doing and you're like, Israelites, can you not see that God is with you, that he is for you, that he's working, that he's bringing you? How can you continue to forget about the things he's already brought you through? How can you forget about the things that he's delivered you from? How can you forget about the times he's protected you and provided for you. And we forget that he's doing the same thing in our lives. And we often have a little bit of memory trouble. And forget about the times that he's delivered us. And protected us. And watched over us. And so he's telling us, trust me. Follow me. I'm trying to do something here. I'm trying to lead you somewhere. I'm in control. But then we're trying to fool ourselves and think that we've got to deliver us that we're in control, that we've got to bring about salvation. We've got to bring about uh, deliverance for ourselves. And so as we look at this at, with the children at the, of Israel at the Red Sea and throughout their wilderness wanderings, it's a parallel for us in our Christian life. We are wandering in the wilderness at the time, and God is trying to show us that we can trust him, that we can follow him, that we need to depend on him and allow him to work things out. Because the more that we lean to our own understanding, that we try to figure out things of our own, when we think that we have to be the hero, we have to be the savior, we are going to miss out on the blessings and benefits of being his children. And so, just in keeping with our, our theme throughout all of this, there's not that much difference between what we see in God's interaction with mankind in the Old Testament and his interaction with mankind in the New Testament. Salvation was the same way. They're just as hard-headed and hard-hearted as what we are today. God is still trying to lead people, trying to show them that he can be trusted, trying to show them his love and his favor toward them, and they are still blind to it, still headstrong, still trying to do their own thing, and oftentimes having to learn through the school of hard knocks. So with that being said, does anyone have any any questions or any comments, anything to add to this this evening? Always been the same. The church isn't Israel. It doesn't replace Israel. But God's dealing with his people, whether it's the church or whether it's Israel, still the same. He loves them. He wants to lead them, guide them, to show himself to them. And they want to assert their independence. And just as he was demonstrating his power and his ability, his authority over the gods of this world back in Egypt, he's still doing it to this day. I think the more that people worship Mother Earth, the more Mother Earth attacks them. Just as a side note, you know how people are looking at global warming and all of these uh, hurricanes and tornadoes and uh, tsunamis and earthquakes and famines and pestilence and disease in the world today. I don't know. Maybe that's just God doing the same thing as he did back in Egypt and saying, okay, if you're going to worship it, I'm going to let it kill you. Just a, just a thought. <laughs> Think about it. Everything that mankind worships, they try to lift up. It ends up being the death of them. But that's just a side note, something for you all to meditate on and ponder over just a little bit.
leave you with that one. Some of you don't look like you appreciate that too much. So anyway, let's go ahead and we'll go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we come to you today. Thank you for your blessings. Lord, we thank you for these passages that we find in Scripture, Lord, and the parallels that we can draw, uh, learning these lessons from those that went before us, Lord. Lord, we know that you're good. We know that you're loving. We know that you're powerful and that you're in control. And Lord, I know that uh, too often we try to, to take the, the reins. We try to deliver ourselves and save ourselves. We make a mess of things. And Lord, just help us to learn these lessons from these people who have learned them the hard way so that we don't have to, to just trust you and to follow you and obey you. And Lord, that uh, you'll work all things together for good. We thank you for all you do. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.